Welcome to Think Bible, the podcast that exists to challenge, edify, and encourage Christian women to think and live biblically, all for the glory of God. I'm your host, Stephanie Smith. Welcome, friends, to the Think Bible podcast. I'm Stephanie Smith, your host for today, and we're reviewing um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 right now. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. So the last two weeks, we talked about rejoice evermore and how we can do that, what types of things we should be rejoicing in, and pray without ceasing. And again, we talked about how to do that. And that prayer um, in this way is more of a submission to God's will for our lives so that we can commune with him all day, no matter what comes our way. So I want to delve just a little deeper into this aspect of prayer, and we're going to talk about meditation today. In our travels this past year, we've stayed at length with a dear family in Idaho. I went to Cup college with this couple's children back in the 90s. I'm telling how old I am. (laughs) And they have now graciously welcomed us to their property with kindness and much generosity. And they have a farm which is watered through irrigation. Now if you're from the West you understand how dry things can be and how important that irrigation water is. So when we pull up in the driveway each day, which is quite long, we get to play an exciting game of miss the sprinklers as we maneuver to our parking spot. It's pretty amusing. And since the stakes are not high, just our muddy car, we enjoy it. But there are other evidences at work of these irrigation waters. There's a family of mallard ducks which have nested in the well-protected irrigation ditch. Their colors shimmer in the sun as they fly to and fro. There are full mature trees which have leafed out beautifully, providing abundant shade for these long summer days to come. There are fragrant flowering bushes that line the driveway, and there are acres of lush green grass that feed and fatten the cows who graze its richness. It's a picture of beauty tranquility, and prosperity. And it reminds me of a similar picture in Scripture. Psalm 1, 1 1-3 Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate, day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. It had never occurred to me until I was recently studying this passage that Psalm 1 is very likely an irrigated tree. Meditate on that with me for a minute. The tree was not born or growing in a privileged place, like by the side of a river or a pond or a lake. 
And it wasn't just a product of chance that water happened to get to the tree. It wasn't necessarily planted by a farmer or a husband, husbandman near the stream. But where these trees happened to grow, someone did intentionally dig an irrigation canal to direct the life-giving water to its roots. Here's a quote that I found on the Logos um, Bible study app. It says, several commentators of Psalm 1 call attention to the fact that the Hebrew words, and it writes them out, I can't pronounce them, <laughs> but those words are rendered by the rivers of water in the KJV. It literally means division of waters, and it most likely refers to the favorite mode of irrigation in ancient Middle Eastern countries. Canals were dug in every direction, and through these, water was carried to all vegetation. Just as farmers have for centuries found ways to irrigate their fields, their vineyards, gardens, and orchards, God has made a way for our spiritual souls to be nourished. We must irrigate our hearts with his word. In other words, we aren't born with the knowledge of how to please God. Even those who are born into Christian homes don't automatically become Christians. But through the hard work of plowing our hearts, which is much the Holy Spirit's job, and eliminating the weeds of sin through confession and repentance, planting seeds of faith and trust by learning God's word and walking with him daily, we saturate ourselves with the water of God's word, we can grow in Christ-likeness. How can we ensure that we are doing these things? Well, it's through the word. The Bible's term for this is meditation. Did you know that we're never actually commanded to memorize God's word? Rather, God instructs us to meditate upon it, think on it, turn it over in our minds, and work at truly understanding it. Meditation has occupied a deep, enduring place in the history of the church as one of the most enjoyed means of God's grace for his people. Christian meditation is guided by the gospel, shared by the scripture, reliant upon the Holy Spirit, and exercised in faith, according to David Mathis. And meditation is the bridge between Bible intake and prayer, between knowing and doing the will of God. That is really important. So, what is meditation? Well, let's start with what it is not. Meditation is something that's so widely misunderstood in our world today. Far Eastern religions have skewed our view of it. So let me just explain a little bit. Meditation is not emptying your mind of everything and trying to become one with the universe. It is not positive self-talk. It is not loving yourself. It is not making a new reality by controlling your thoughts or any number of other things that you've heard from the trendy culture out there. David Guzik says, in Eastern meditation, the goal is to empty the mind. This is dangerous because an empty mind may present an open invitation to deception or a demonic spirit. But in Christian meditation, 
The goal is to fill your mind with the word of God. This can be done by carefully thinking about each word and phrase and applying it to oneself and praying it back to the Lord. Let me also here just say a word about yoga. Yoga is very trendy, fashionable, popular, even among Christians. But yoga is not biblical. While stretching might be good for your muscles, yoga incorporates spiritual elements that are anti-biblical. Dr. Ishwar V. Basavarati from the Ministry of External Affairs for the Government of India defines yoga this way. Yoga is essentially a spiritual discipline. You see, it's not an exercise, according to those who know most about it. (laughs) Yoga is essentially a spiritual discipline based on an extremely subtle science, which focuses on bringing harmony between mind and body. As per yogic scriptures, that's not the Bible, if you're not sure, The practice of yoga leads to the union of individual consciousness with that of universal consciousness, indicating a perfect harmony between the mind and body, man and nature. Thus, the aim of yoga is self-realization. This is what this um, lady from India tells us. It is to overcome all kinds of sufferings leading to a state of liberation or freedom. Yoga also refers to an inner science comprising of a variety of methods through which human beings can realize this union and achieve mastery over their destiny. She goes on to say, yoga is also commonly understood as a therapy or exercise system for health and fitness. The process begins with the body, then the breath, then the mind, and the inner self. While physical and mental health are natural consequences of yoga, the goal of yoga is more far-reaching. Yoga is about harmonizing oneself with the universe. So its proponents say that its goal is to control one's destiny, to become one with the universe. Its history is connected with idol worship, both of man-made gods and of the sun. It has strong connections to Buddhism and Hinduism. Students are taught that following yoga is the highest form of human wisdom and will give one peace. All of these are anti-biblical things. Peace does not come from uniting one's mind and soul with the universe. It comes from knowing the one true creator God and accepting him as our savior. So, I'm going to step down off that soapbox now. I don't want you to be offended. Don't don't shoot the messenger. But please understand that when I speak of meditation, I am in no way referring to these practices of Near Eastern religions, of emptying our minds so we can become one with a great universal consciousness. Okay, so there are hard things going on in our world. Many of us are in a state of turmoil and stress over those things. There are wars, rumors of wars, famines, inflation, food shortages, whether those are caused by nature or by power-hungry people. There are wildfires already in the West this year. There's a drought and lack of water. 
And there's this virus that just won't go away, that keeps changing the way we do our business, our economy, our daily lives. There's just more and more things. And I know some of you are dealing with very personal trials. It seems that I know many who have been dealt with cancer, heart issues, organ transplant needs, the loss of loved ones, financial strain and ruin, wayward children, unfaithful spouses, miscarriage and infertility. The list is never ending. So how do we tune out all those distractions and draw ever closer to our Lord Jesus? How do we find a way to keep our minds and hearts settled so that we are rejoicing evermore, praying without ceasing, and in everything giving thanks? How do we obey God's word and live in victory, walking in his will? The answer to all of these is meditation. Meditation is reviewing God's truths found in his word over and over thinking about them, considering every aspect of them, and applying them to our lives. As I've said before, it's the missing link or the bridge between Bible intake and prayer, between knowing and doing the will of God. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says this, Meditation chews the cud and gets the sweetness and nutritive virtue of the word into the heart and life. This is the way the godly brings forth much fruit. Again, Spurgeon says that many believers lack faith and obedience in their lives because they do only reading, not meditating on the word. This is his specific quote. It is not only reading that does us good, but the soul inwardly feeding on it and digesting it. The first time that the word meditate is used in scripture is in Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. When we understand the word meditate, this makes perfect sense. The first use of the word meditate, which is in Hebrew, hagah, literally means to moan, mutter, utter, or muse. It involves quietly rehearsing the words of the Bible to oneself, sometimes under the breath, sometimes loudly, sometimes silently, and just in our thoughts. Some Bible teachers and pastors compare meditation with chewing the cud, as was the case with Spurgeon that we just read. We ought to do this with God's word. We think on it, and we keep it in the mouth where we can chew on it. Work it over in your mind, and you will glean more of the meaning from a passage each time you do this. The first use of the word here in Joshua 1a also tells us why we should meditate that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. The reason is because meditation facilitates obedience. That's a really important principle. Meditation facilitates obedience. When we think about what God wants us to do, the consequences of disobedience, the rewards of obedience, it sure makes sense to do things God's way. 
So we meditate on the Word of God to help us obey the Word of God. Psalm 1, 1 and 2, which we looked at earlier, um, in verse 2 it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate, Hagah, day and night. So this verse helps us to see what should be the focus of our meditation, and that is God's law or his word. We are not to empty our minds of everything, but rather to fill our minds with God's word. And in doing so, we will find that a godly person is influenced not by unrighteous people, but by his meditation on the word of God. And you know, this is a great way to help protect our children from wrong influences in their lives too. Teach them young and early to meditate on God's word. So the passage for meditation could come from your daily Bible reading, your devotion time, maybe from your pastor's message on Sunday, or something you heard on the radio from a preacher, or a podcast like Think Bible that you might hear. Anytime God brings his word across your path, this is a candidate for meditation. Perhaps you need to specifically look for a passage that addresses your needs, but always focus your meditation in God's word, not in self-help books or positive thinking gurus or modern psychologists or social media influencers or anything else, only the Bible, the word of God. As God is infinite, there are an infinite number of things about him to ponder and meditate upon. And as the Bible is a living book, it will always challenge and convict us to change. There are always more ways to increase our knowledge of God. So meditation is an inexhaustible, lifelong discipline. So within God's word, what specifically can or should we meditate upon? Well, one thing would be God's works and his doings. Psalm 77, 12 says, I will meditate, Hagah, also of all thy work, and talk of thy doings. In Psalm 143, 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. So what are some of God's works? Well, there's creation. We just did a two-part podcast on that with our friend Paula Eamon. That would be a great place to start. Maybe something specific God has done in your life. In our family, we always like to think back to when God gave us our twins, born nine weeks apart and very prematurely. But he worked miracles in that time. That gives us strength and stability. How about salvation? Jesus' birth, fulfilled prophecies, the crucifixion, burial, especially the resurrection. There are many works and doings of God that we can meditate on. Another thing is to search for answers for those in our lives who are searching or unsaved. Proverbs 15.28 says, The heart of the righteous studieth. That's the same word, Hagah. The heart of the righteous studieth to answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. People are searching for truth. How did this world come to be? Why am I here? What is my purpose? 
and why are you so different from other people? 1 Peter 3.15 Be ready always to give an answer of the hope that lieth in you. Another area for meditation, something that I really hadn't considered much, is that of mourning or lament. Hard things happen, and sorrow is a real emotion. Grief can be paralyzing, but God says we can meditate on him as a result of those things too. Now remember, meditation is the key to obedience. That's rejoicing evermore and giving thanks for all things, even in the hard circumstances, for things we don't like. Isaiah thirty-eight fourteen says, Like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter. I did mourn, Hagah, as a dove. Mine eyes fail with looking upward. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. I don't know if you've ever had a dove in your yard or your neighborhood, but their cry is very repetitive and very persistent. So the psalmist or the the author of Isaiah is taking that as an example um, to demonstrate how he can meditate through his sorrows, through his abuse and distress. So he takes the hardships of his life and turns them into a God-focused prayer. That is the benefit of meditating, even on our trials. We can use them as a catalyst to refocus our mind and heart on our faithful, wise, sovereign God. Otherwise, it just becomes a pity party. And when you come to a place that you cannot fix, you can't get out of, you can't make better, turn your eyes back to the Lord and beg him to undertake for you. Those who faithfully meditate upon God's word will also find that it makes a difference in the things they speak about as well as the way they speak. Have you ever noticed that, um, especially a newly engaged or a couple that's just started dating, everything they say has to do with that loved one? Her likes, her perspectives, her needs, her wishes, her desires. Well, that's kind of what meditation does for us about God, too. So another thing we can meditate on is God's righteousness and the praise that he deserves. Um, Psalm thirty-five twenty-eight says, My tongue shall speak, and that's the word, Hagah, of thy righteousness and of thy praise all the day long. So we will meditate upon God's righteousness, his perfection, his holiness, and the praise he deserves because of that. And lastly, we can meditate on God's wisdom and judgment. Psalm 3730, the mouth of the righteous speaketh, or Hagah, wisdom, and his tongue talketh of judgment. So as we meditate upon God's wisdom, we can in turn realize that that permeates our lives. The Bible also says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Our behavior and our choices stem from the things we say and believe, and those come out of our heart, the things we love. 
Remember back in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law does he meditate. The blessed man loves God's word. Well, when should we meditate? This one's a pretty easy answer. I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. So we do it in the night. My tongue shall also talk, Hagah, of thy righteousness all the day long. So we do it in the day. And our first verse that we mentioned, Joshua 1.8, Thou shalt meditate therein day and night. All the time is a good time to meditate on God's word. Have you ever given up sleep to meditate on the truth about God? Your priorities reveal your heart. The value of thinking and meditating upon God and his works, and especially the law he's given to his people, are examples for us today. Believers should think and meditate upon the things that are true and noble, pure and lovely, but even more, we should put those things into practice. And when we do, the scripture says we will be blessed. Blessed is the man. Spurgeon observes here, it's not blessed is the king, or blessed is the scholar, blessed is the rich, but rather blessed is the man. This blessedness is as attainable by the poor, the forgotten, and the obscure, as by those whose names figure in history and are trumpeted by fame. Blessed means supremely happy or fulfilled. In fact, in Hebrew, the word is actually a plural, which denotes either a multiplicity of blessings or an intensification of them, says Boyce. So the blessings of being righteous or well-watered by God's word is that one, we have a continual source of water. Um, the man who trusts in God and who meditates on his word will never wither away because he's always getting what he needs spiritually. If we're constantly needing, it might be worth examining if we are actually planted by these rivers of water or not. Perhaps we just have the appearance of being faithful when deep inside we're not. This would also be a tree that is strong and stable with deep roots, and the life of a righteous man is marked by strength and stability. David Guzik also helps us to see that the righteous man who is meditating in God's word will bear fruit, such as the fruit of the Spirit. This fruit comes naturally from the tree because it is planted by water. It is abiding in a life source, just as in John 15 we're told to abide in Christ. Fruit also does have a season. Don't get discouraged if you don't see fruit immediately. It takes time and persistence and faithfulness before that fruit appears. And yet Paul Tripp says, There are no barren trees in God's orchard. There will be signs of growth for every believer. And thirdly, David Guzik reminds us that being a righteous man and having the blessing of God as we meditate doesn't mean that we will have the Midas touch where everything we do makes us rich or comfortable. No, that's a false gospel. 
that many preach today, but that's, that's not what the Bible's teaching here. He says, in the life of the righteous man, God brings forth something good and wonderful out of everything. Even tough circumstances bring forth something that shall prosper. So in Psalm 1, we've seen the contrast between the blessed and the ungodly man. The righteous man makes right choices because his mind is occupied with right things, namely the word of God. So meditation facilitates obedience. That's what we want to take away today. And that's why meditation is the bridge between Bible intake and prayer, between knowing and doing the will of God. It will make all the difference in your walk with him. You've been listening to the Think Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Smith. Please visit us at our website, www.thinkbible.online to learn more about our ministry or to take advantage of the resources we have there for you. That's www.thinkbible.online. You can also find us at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the name Think Bible. Until next time, let's all think and live biblically for the glory of God.